turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to take a quick break from going through Hebrews. Or a short break, I should say. Yeah, I hadn't decided I hadn't decided until Thursday that we were going to have a little detour th- through Ephesians. And then uh, in the previous service together, um, Larry got up and read my scripture portion. And so I thought, maybe that's the Lord saying, good choice. So we're in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And the title of this message today is, God really, really loves you. So let down your defenses and give up your offenses and let him love you. Longest sermon title I've ever had. So I get that little achievement on my pastor's scoreboard. God really, really loves you. I wanted to put four reallys in there, but then I thought you'd stop taking me seriously. God really, really loves you. So let down your defenses, give up your offenses, and let him love you. Exclamation mark. Love's a big deal. Love is a really, really, really big deal. It's a really big deal to us. As people, especially in our culture, um, people will do the craziest things for love. And love is one of those battleground words in our culture where you don't actually know what somebody means when they say love. Um, for many of us, it's like a cotton candy word where it just means I kind of like enjoy you. Um, sometimes it means a level of loyalty. Um, sometimes it just means I get a high off of being in your presence. Um, sometimes it means I think you're cute. Um, but also in our culture, it's a battleground word because there are many, many things that are just morally wrong or against God's word that are done in the name of love. And so, um, and that can kind of catch us flat-footed sometimes. But all that to say, it's a major, major word for us. We, we want to be loved. We were made to be loved. We were made to be loved by God forever. And if we don't get that love, we will do crazy things to get it. Or we will do terrible things to try to fill the void. We want to be loved so bad that we will do crazy things to get it, or we will do terrible things to fill the void. And that's part of living in this broken world. And Scripture knows this, and God's Word knows this, and the Holy Spirit knows this. And so in the middle of Ephesians, we get this prayer that... God would give us supernatural power to know how much he loves us because we need it so badly. So I will read the word of God. This is the Apostle Paul. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, I am so grateful for your word. Father, this is just one of the best parts of the best book. And Father, I pray for real grace today, that you would be working in our minds and our hearts to fulfill this desire. Father, I assume that whenever you have captured a prayer of one of the apostles in your New Testament, this is you saying, this is how I pray. These are my desires. This is what I'm working on in your life. And so, Father, would you fulfill your desire that we would know the love of Christ in our time, in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our homes, in this church, in this town, Father, that your church would be raised up to know the love of Christ in Steinbeck and Winnipeg and in the prairies and in Canada and all of North America and the entire world. Lord, that you would respond to all the crazy stuff that's happening in the world by causing your people to really know your love so that we can cause more people to really know your love. In Jesus' mighty name, I ask and I'm confident in you. And amen. Excuse me. One thing I know about you is that you care about love. One thing I know about you is that you care about love. And I know that the Lord cares about love. If you have been around Calvary for a while and you've heard a message on Ephesians, you've probably been told that Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to one of his churches he planted, and it's kind of divided nicely in half. The first three chapters are um, indicative, if you're a grammar nerd. Um, They just tell you how the world is and what God has done for us in Jesus. It's information, information, information. And then the second half is the imperative. It's the commands. It's this is how you should live. That's about the transformation, transformation, transformation. First half, information. Second half, transformation. First half, what God has done. Second half, what we should then do. And I've listened to that and I've been like, yeah, that's true. But as I've been Working through this message and meditating on it, I've realized that it's not 100% accurate because the first half, the information, is actually bracketed in these two really deep prayers. And I'll read the first one that we didn't read so far. He says this in chapter 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, or which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he goes on from there. So the information portion, bear with me here, 
where he talks about how we were dead in our sin and trespasses. God being rich in love and mercy sent Jesus to die for our sins on the cross and to be raised from the dead to be our Lord. And through that, he took us when we were dead in our sins and he raised us from the dead in Christ and seated us in heavenly places in love. And that not only has he kind of taken away the dividing barrier between us and God, he has in Christ made a new humanity together embracing Jew and Gentile, those who are close to God in the Old Testament, those who are far away, making one new person and breaking down every dividing wall between people in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the right time, sending Jesus and from Jesus, sending out the apostles with this message that God has been working on this rescue plan the whole time that the earth has been around. He's been working on it. And now he has finally revealed his mission to unite all things in his son in love. And that information, which is not just text message information, this is the most important information you will ever have to come to try to understand that God has loved us through Jesus Christ and saved us from our sin and rescued us through the cross. That information is sandwiched between two prayers for power. The first, that we would have wisdom and revelation to know what God has done for us. And the second, that we would have power in the Holy Spirit, that we would be strengthened to know how much God loves us. Because it is impossible on our own for us to know how much God loves us and what he has done through Jesus. Uh, This week I was out for lunch with my friend Scott, and he was telling me about the time he took the Big Ethel Challenge. Has anybody ever, do you remember, this is from a few years ago, the Big Ethel, all right, in the back row, I see that. Uh, fortunately, one of the co-owners of that restaurant was here in the first service, so she corrected some of the details. But the Big Ethel um, was a burger at a burger joint in Steinbeck, and it had five pounds of meat in the patty, okay? Five pounds, not a quarter pounder. Compare your quarter pounder. At McDonald's or whatever, multiply that by 20. And that is how much meat was in the Big Ethel. And the Big Ethel challenge was, if you could finish the Big Ethel, it's a hamburger, it's served on a turkey platter. If you can finish the Big Ethel in one sitting, you get it for free, because it costs like 28 bucks, and that was in the 90s. So that was like $300 nowadays or whatever, (laughs) however it works. And my friend Scott said he worked on it for over an hour to try to finish it and just had to tap out. It was just not possible to do. God's love is like the Big Ethel Burger. You, you just cannot get this thing down. Our capacity to ingest the knowledge of how much God loves us through Jesus and what he has done from Jesus will split your gut if you try. And so the Apostle Paul is on his knees regularly before the throne of heaven praying, God, would you help us get it? Because we need you to strengthen us to get it. I want to look really closely at how this prayer works. Because this is one of the more important prayers in scripture, one of the most important prayers for our lives, because we are so hungry for love. And let me tell you that being part of the technological age has not helped us, where much of our relationship is done with a glowy screen in front of us, and most of our conversations are 
13 syllables or less. Um, the technological age we live in has not helped us form great relationships. And so we really need to know God's love more than ever in this time. But let's look at how the prayer works, okay? Can we get these things? So I've, I've broken this up and I've titled, um, I've labeled what he prays for with the letter A and then why he prays for it with the letter B. So we can get the, this next one up here too. And I put a little one there because how I understand this prayer is he takes a shot at it and he, he realizes I'm not quite praying the fullness of what I want. So he takes a second run at it in his prayer. That's what I think is going on. So he prays as he says, I, I ask that God will strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. Okay, so this is how the prayer starts, okay? You need to be strengthened with the power of God by the Spirit, which is the power of God unleashed on the world since the day of Pentecost. You need to have the Spirit either grow up inside of you like a flame that is just a little candle flame, but it's, you know, you you carry your jerry can a little bit too close to the bonfire and then... It expands somewhat rapidly. You need to have the Spirit give you holy God power in your inner self. And why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, it takes strength even for Christians, even for mature Christians. It takes the power of God to have Christ dwelling inside of you the way that God really wants through faith. And, you know, as I've heard that, I've read this a few times, it's easy for me to kind of imagine little Jesus bouncing around inside your chest cavity, like a little Lego man, you know, like just running around, tweaking things. Emmett's in there doing his master builder thing, trying to get your character in shape, you know, master build a gigantic construction robot, just inside you kind of jumping around in there. And that's not the picture that the scripture is working with here. Don't imagine a tiny little Jesus pulling ropes inside of your soul like the he's just reefing on the be nice to your wife soul you know rope yeah this is really i'm gonna need to get some oil up there because it's just really stiff that's not what's going on and so he continues he's prayed this and he's kind of said i want christ to dwell in your heart through faith he says i i haven't quite nailed this prayer yet so i as i'm reading it he starts over again but this time with more detail so that people would really understand what he's praying for so he launches again okay a2 there we go and i'm seeing the connection i've underlined where i see the connections between the a's and the b's okay so he starts again that you may be have strength to comprehend. So why do you need the power of God? Why do you need the spirit inside of you? So you can get something. So you can understand something. That, that the head knowledge can become heart knowledge. So the reading can be not just reading words on the page, but reading the spirits writing on your soul. You have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So this is an individual thing, but this is something we're working on together. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know, B2, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, so this is where I don't want to drop the ball, but where human words fail me. What does it mean to have Christ dwell in your hearts through faith? It means that you know the unknowable 
you know that Christ really, really loves you. Okay, It's not just about a Lego man jumping around, pulling switches. To have Christ dwell in you means to know that he really loves you. Not just everybody, but you. Not, not just the church, you. Not the whole world, you. When you know Christ really loves you, that is Christ dwelling in your heart. And not just a little Lego man jumping around, but when you know that Christ loves you, you are filled with the fullness of God. It's Him filling you up like a hot air balloon that is now leaking out of all the vents and the sides. Christ is filling everything when you know He loves you. And that's Paul's prayer. It's weird to pray that God would help you know what can't be known. It surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that surpasses knowledge. I want God to get you to comprehend something that's incomprehensible. I want you to, you to get what's ungettable. Even though he knows it's beyond fleshly accomplishment, he says in response to his own gigantic prayer in verse 20 now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in christ jesus throughout all generations forevermore just like look at how he's working through this he's like, i'm praying for the impossible and praise god the impossible is so easy he can do so much more than we could ever think or ask His expectation is that God is going to answer his prayer and cause the Ephesian church to actually get how much Jesus loves them. And so even though I'm saying it's impossible to know the love of Christ, I'm also saying God is going to make us know how much Jesus loves us because he delights to do the impossible. He delights to do the impossible. For the sake of his people. I think one of the reasons why it's when Paul is teaching his this church here, okay, he's written this letter, he's explaining Christ to them, encouraging them, saying, God's God's amazing to you in Christ. And when he's done the information section, he doesn't just say, I'm going to assume you get it. Let's move on to the application. Instead, he thinks, I'm going to assume you don't get it. I'm going to pray now. One of the reasons why he assumes we're not going to get it is because um, we actually have defenses against knowing the love of God. Okay. God's, God's not the problem. We're the problem. That's, that's a good assumption in life when things are going wrong. God's not the problem. It's probably me. That's a good assumption in my marriage. I'm working on that being my knee-jerk reaction. Maybe I'm the problem. Um, And so that's why the title of this message is God really, really loves you. So put down your defenses and give up your offenses and just let him love you. And I I can see in myself and as, as I also lead this church that there are times where it becomes obvious that we have defenses and offenses that stand against receiving the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And so I'm defining, we can go on to the next slides here. What are defenses? Okay, so in a very general way of talking about defenses, 
Um, defenses are a hostile response against anticipated pain. Okay, so um, if you ever like are interested in medieval times when they used to build castles, they would castles. Excuse me, they would often put up walls and dig moats. Right? Why do you put up a wall? Why do you dig a moat? Because you anticipate that sometime some marauding band of crazy barbarians could come in and burn down your village and steal your stuff. And so you're anticipating that would be painful. That wouldn't be pleasant. And so you build up a defense against the anticipation of something painful coming. That's why we have defenses. Um, Offenses, I'm going to define this morning as kind of a hostile response. And by hostile, I mean like you're getting ready to fight. Okay. Um, A hostile response as opposed to like a submissive response or patient response, a hostile response to past or present pain. All right, so something happens to you, it hurts you, and you get offended about it. Um, and so, like, like for instance, okay, so imagine you're walking down the street, and um, it might not happen in Steinbeck because it's actually not easy to be walking down the street and actually pass people most times on Main Street. Um, but you're walking down the street, and somebody gives you a shoulder and kind of bumps you while you're walking, and then they say, watch where you're going, bozo. Like, bozo is the insult of choice nowadays, but this is going to be on the internet, so bozo it is. Um, and so you've been shoved and insulted, and so you kind of, that pain gets into your 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 brain or your heart, and so you're offended, and maybe you're spending the rest of the day just going, oh, I wish I'd cracked that no good, or maybe if I found him, he was walking across a crosswalk, and I'm in my car, I'm just going to accidentally hit the gas instead of the brake, or whatever, right? You're kind of meditating on the pain of a past event, and then you put up defenses in response to this. So next time you're walking down the street, and you see somebody who looks like somebody who might bump you and call you names, you go to the other side, or you, you decide that that thing in the store window looks really appealing all of a sudden, so you're investigating, you know, 300 yards of cloth in the store window waiting for someone to walk by you because you don't want to have that pain of a shove and an insult again, okay? So it's a totally made-up situation, but you can see how offenses and defenses work together to put up barriers against um, anticipated pain or past pain. And uh, this, this pain can be, you know, we experience pain in lots of different ways. Um, we can have psychological pain, um, you know, the anguish of depression or anxiety, um, those kinds of things. We can have physical pain, which is often the easiest one to deal with. Um, when I had my kidney stone a couple, couple of years ago, was, I, I remember that time very fondly. Um, and not because of the painkillers, which I responded badly to. Um, it was just it's like, hey, this is like the cross. you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm in tons of pain, just like Jesus. This is great. Um, physical pain can be really bad, but it's not always. It's, it's often the easiest one to deal with. Um, we can have social pain, which is things like rejection or slander or gossip and stuff like that, which just hurts like crazy. Uh, we can also have spiritual pain, which is where our walk with God um, is painful. And it's often because we're disappointed or feeling rejected or abandoned by him. And these are all different kinds of pains. And we, we can respond very naturally with defenses against pain or offenses against pain. And so here's a couple of scriptural um, examples an example of someone who had defenses up against the lord okay so gideon from the book of judges you may remember uh, israel's been invaded by the midianites i believe it is 
and Gideon is threshing some wheat in a wine press. So he's working on getting dinner together, and but he needs to hide it. He's hiding from the tax man. He doesn't want the Midianites to come and steal his grain, so he's doing it in secret. And an angel shows up and greets him and says, you know, greeting, almighty warrior, the Lord is with you. And does Gideon respond, hey, thanks, that's pretty encouraging. No, he doesn't. He says, well, if the Lord is with us, then how come we're being oppressed? How come there's all this bad stuff? Why isn't he doing miracles like he did with our parents? And this is a defensive response. You know, God is trying to say, hey, man, um, I'm with you. You're a mighty warrior. And his, re- and his response is, that's not true. If that were true, why is all this garbage in my life? Okay, and so right away, there's a blessing coming to him. There's something positive coming to him. There's promised speech from God. And there's, but there's no room in, in Gideon's heart at that moment to receive any, any affirmation from the Lord. The defenses are there. Okay, I don't receive what you're saying. Probably because it would be too painful to believe that God is actually with them in the midst of all the suffering he's in. And in a slightly similar way, I can totally get that kind of response. Um, God's leading me out of this. But for years, you know, after I'd have a message, you can, you can feel very vulnerable after getting up in, here and sharing. Anybody ever get up here and share in front of everybody and then sit down and be like, did I just take first place in the idiots in front of people awards ceremony? Like, did I just, is that my shoe in my mouth? You know, um, you can feel very vulnerable. And then sometimes people would come up and say, hey, that was a good message. And my response would be to laugh at them. Okay? They would say, hey, I was really blessed by that. And I would just go, ha, 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 Because um, it was easier to laugh than to actually start, um, than to, to acknowledge like, okay, maybe, maybe you liked it, but other people didn't like it. And it could just be easier to... To deal with that that way, just to laugh. It was a defense against possible pain from public performance while preaching, just to have five words that start with P in a sentence. All right? So that's how I've experienced. So God's working on my heart there. And so now when people, if people say, good job, um, it's just like, I might laugh a little bit just because I'm happy for you. But I'm like, hey, thank you. That's great. I'm glad you're blessed. Um, A scriptural example of people with offenses in their relationship with the Lord would be Naomi from the book of Ruth. You might remember the story of Ruth where Naomi and her family go, they leave Israel to go to Moab because Israel's having a famine. Okay, they have no food and they're like, Okay, there's been other stories in the Bible where a famine's happened and God's people go to another country and God really blesses them and sends them back rich, stinking rich. Just like Abraham, right? There's a famine in the promised land. He leaves down to some other place. Um, his wife gets stolen for a couple of weeks, but then God shows up and gives him his wife back and then they send him out with all this money. So here they are expecting um, God to load them up with riches and send them back to Israel after the famine is gone. Uh, except what happens is that... Um, Naomi's husband and two sons die. And she's just left with these Moabite daughter-in-laws and probably dead broke. And so she's heading back to Israel because that would explain why she'd be heading back. You know, the the funds have run out. Um, I'm I'm assuming that when they left Israel, they sold all their stuff and just took a bunch of coin over to Moab. And so now she's got nothing but her daughters-in-law and she leaves and she's trying to send the daughter 
in-laws back to their parents, but Ruth stays with her. So here she is. She's coming back to um, Bethlehem, her hometown, and she's lost all her money, lost her husband, lost her kids, and all she has is this tag-along foreigner to show for everything. And so when people see Naomi's back in town, they say, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? And her name means pleasant. And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Because Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. Okay, so here's her hometown. They're kind of like, hey, you're back. And she's like, oh, don't, don't talk to me. Don't look at me. I've been through so much. I don't, just no parties, no prayer meetings, no nothing. Just change my name to Mistress Bitterness and leave me alone. Little does she know that her daughter-in-law is like one of the godliest ladies who's ever going to appear in scripture and will be the great-grandmother of King David and the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
awesome and finding out that we had our own issues along the way. Um, but I just remember this one moment with this lady named Alita, um, who's one of the leaders, and she's praying for me, and she's just talking to me and saying, you know, Rob, God really loves you. And the more she said it to me, the more my hands just got pressed against my face, kind of like covering up. This is like a defensive posture, right? You cover your hands. I don't want to see the world. This is a grieving posture. I don't want to see the world. I don't want the world to see me. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to see the people around me. And in my case, it was, you know, I don't want to look at God, and I don't want God to look at me. And that was in response to her saying, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. I don't know, I don't, the root was probably some kind of shame or some kind of guilt or something like that. But it was, it was like, it was a human interaction that was letting me know what was going on with the Lord. Do you believe that people can love you? If you have a hard time feeling loved by people, and this is no judgment, you probably have a hard time feeling loved by God. And this is why Scripture prays this. Because God of heaven is determined in Jesus to make you know that he really, really loves you. And all the details of your life are working together to jump over the walls and tunnel under the barriers and sometimes to slap the rhinoceros on the behind and send it charging through our defenses so that we can know that God really, really loves us. He really, really, really loves us in Jesus. Let me just go to God's biggest expression of love that he's done for us. That in his mind and in his heart was meant to be the thing where he finally settles the issue of whether or not he loves his people, whether or not he really is for his people, whether or not he shows a steadfast loyalty and a passionate devotion and an affection-filled commitment to his people. It's from Romans 8. And this is a similar situation where Paul has for eight chapters talked about the information of salvation, what he's done. And then he just goes off at the end of chapter 8 and says this, What then shall we say to all these things, that that we are sinners, but God has loved us in our sin and sent the Son to save us and rescue us and to be our life and our future and everything we need? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one that died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are like sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And this is what he's saying. Um, He's saying the hardest thing in the universe was for God to kill his son. The sanest moments of my life are when I can actually get myself out of my brain and look at the world from God's perspective. And if I were God, and I had been in this loving relationship with my own son, this perfect relationship, this glorious relationship where everything about him is awesome and perfect, and he loves me back completely and infinitely, and we have been enjoying this forever, the hardest thing ever would be to make my son a man and then to torture him and slay him for a bunch of sinners who hate us both anyways. That would be the hardest thing in the universe to do. To be God the Father and to purpose and will the crucifixion of my beloved son. That would be the most impossible thing that could ever happen. And scripture is saying to us, God already did it for you. The hardest thing, the most impossible thing, the thing that the father should just say, that will never happen. He already did in love for us. So how will he not also give us everything? If he's already given us the death and resurrection of his son to save us, how will will he not also, because he loves us. And so he goes on with this big list of things that we will interpret as God forsaking us and not loving us. Not having enough clothes, not having enough food, people wanting to kill you, people hating you, people failing you, the future, demons, Caesars. This list of hardships that we will naturally look at and say, God must not love me, I'm offended, and I'm going to put up my defenses against God. He's saying, no, 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 no. Nothing can separate you from the love of God now. He's already done the hardest thing. He's already overcome the most impossible barriers. Now you are in a place where your tomorrow cannot separate you from God's love in Jesus. God really, really loves you. So take down your defenses and give up your offenses. And just let him love you through Jesus Christ. Now, why is this important? We've already talked about it. This is really important because whether you believe it or not, whether you've hardened yourself or not, whether you've been proud of your accomplishments for not wanting love or not, you want to be loved so bad by a perfect father. That's, I don't know what it is to say. That's what you want. You want to be loved by a perfect father who will come to you and say, I'm proud of you, I like you, and I want to be with you forever. Why do daddy-daughter dates at Southland rock your world so bad? Because you're touching heaven. 
Everyone wants to just be a little kid running up to a gigantic dad, which we love and respect and is flawlessly perfect, who will look at us and say, I love you so much and I'm so proud of you. and I want to be with you forever. And every war and every genocide and every family problem comes out of a bunch of people not having that. So we, we need to know that we're loved. And God is working on it. We need it so bad that sometimes if we look it in the face, we run away because we don't want to be want love so much. We also need it for just how we live and treat each other. Later on in this in Ephesians, when God's in the section of explaining what life looks like when you're loved by God, he says this. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the big picture description of how you live as a Christian. Love because God loved you and Jesus loved you. That, why should you make any choices in life? Why should you give generously? Why should you reach out to your neighbor? Why should you be patient with your kids and try to raise them up in the Lord? Why should you work on your marriage? Why should, why should you anything? This is the big motivation. Like a beloved child, be like God because Jesus loved you and gave you an example to act like. This is the deepest motivation. Can you see how living as a Christian falls apart as soon as you take out the beloved child part as soon as you take out the i know jesus loves me part then then the entire christian life falls apart then it just becomes rules then it just becomes duties then then we become pharisees all that all that stuff the pharisees weren't bad because they tried hard or they took god's word seriously they they killed jesus because they really did not believe god loved them because when jesus showed up to love them they did this and they got offended and then they killed him So we need it for our growth, and we need it for our character. We need it for how we treat other people. We also need it for mission. In a different letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul is trying to explain why he is willing to suffer so much to spread the gospel. And he sums it up in this little phrase. He says this, chapter 5, verse 14, he says, The love of Christ controls us. As we're ambassadors of reconciliation, the love of Christ controls us. As we go about planting churches, it's the love of Christ that compels us, another translation says. Why are we willing to have a village full of people throw stones at us until we're dead and then get back up and go back into the village to preach the gospel? It's the love of Jesus. Why do we go into synagogues and expect for them to all want to kill us after a few weeks? It's the love of Jesus. Why do, we, why do we do missions? Because we know God's love and we know there are people who don't know God's love. And so the love of Christ compels us because we believe that he died. Therefore, everyone has died and needs to be called back up to life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is just a little encouragement. I know you long to be loved. And watch out. 
the more you know Christ's love, the more you're going to care about your neighbor and especially your unsaved neighbor. Because the love of Christ drives us in a direction to care about people who don't know him. So that's why it's important to know that God really, really loves you. So let down your defenses. Can you name any of your defenses against believing God loves you? Have you experienced any? Have the, any of the yeah buts been happening to you? And give up your offenses. Can you name any of your offenses about God? This happened to me. This keeps happening to me. God, you're ruining my life. If, there, if God were real, then why would this happen? If God were love, then how come this happens? These are offenses against believing in God's love. Can you name them and lay them down? And just let God love you through Jesus. Father, I just thank you so much for your word and that you are laboring as the sovereign God of the universe to overcome our discouragement and the the logic we have where we say pain equals God not loving me, therefore I will defend myself. Father, would you bring us to a place where we can embrace weakness and the suffering of our in our lives as part of your gracious gift to us and your glory in our lives? Father, would you help us where we're in deep pain, even now, to give it to you? Father, I pray that you'd pour out the healing balm of Gilead on us. And it would work its way into every scar and every scab and bring relief from the pain and healing from the wound for your great goal helping us know that you really, really love us in Jesus. Father, I pray you would strengthen every heart by a fresh move of your spirit that would quiet every voice in our heads where we hear the accuser saying, but you've done this and you're like this and you failed this. When you draw near to us where we want to put on our fig leaves and hide in the bushes, Lord, that you would take down our defenses. Help us to be vulnerable before you because you want to draw near to convince us that you love us in Jesus. Father, would you help us be gracious with one another? I know sometimes when you're taking down defenses, we can freak out. Lord, when you're drawing near to wounds in our our hearts to heal them, we can get really angry at the people around us and want to put a stop to it but you won't relent. Lord, would you help us be really gracious when somebody around us is losing it? Instead of thinking, we need to stop their behavior, would you help us to go, maybe, Lord, you're trying to bring your love to a vulnerable part of their heart. Lord, would you make us to know your ways? Teach us your paths. And bless Calvary Chapel and your church. In Jesus' name and amen.